Welcome to the Paranormal Factor Podcast. I'm your host, Richard Wright. Thanks for stopping by. This is the place to explore mysteries, investigate the otherworldly, and share stories of the inexplicable and the strange. You see, within the realm of our daily, ordinary lives, there is a paranormal factor always waiting to reveal itself. So let's begin exploring together the truly weird. Welcome listeners, and thanks for stopping by. I'm glad you could join me and listen to this new episode where we encounter one of the greatest supernatural creatures in history. Well, at least according to legends. But first, an update on the podcast. We've now reached over 3,000 listens in just 10 months. That's 300 listens a month or about 75 per week. Pretty good. And that's due to listeners like you, and I'm thrilled you enjoy coming back again and again to take in the episodes each week. I thought I'd take the opportunity to share some numbers to date with you. The Paranormal Factor podcast is now listened to in 34 countries and on every continent except Antarctica. I don't know how I'll get listeners there, but you never know. It's pretty close to even between male and female listeners. Our top four episodes, well, those would be Dark Mermaid Encounters, The Socorro Incident, La Llorona, Alien Attack on Kentucky Farms, and Scary Ouija Board Stories. Apple Podcasts and Spotify are still our biggest listening platforms, although we are listened to on over 12 platforms in all. And over 60% of our listeners are in the 35 to 59 age group, with listeners in the 23 to 34 age group making up 21%. Well, as you can see, we continue to grow, and it's because of your support. So, once again, thank you for making the time to be a part of the Paranormal Factor Podcast family of listeners. Now, on to the episode. Wait, 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 wait. Before we start, let me remind you to visit our Facebook page, where you'll find monsters, quizzes, film, TV, book recommendations, and the latest current paranormal news in the world. Every week has new content just for you. Okay, now on to our episode. New Orleans, Louisiana, 2013. Three women are in the French Quarter for a girls' night out. As they walked along the sidewalk, they passed by the Ursuline Convent. Something unbelievably frightening was about to happen. The women were looking in the direction of the old cathedral when one of the women saw a man on the edge of the lit roof. Star Murrow remembered. My friend was saying, oh my God, he's going to jump. And my first thought was that this man is going to commit suicide. As the women watched in horror, waiting for the inevitable fall, they were shocked to see him simply float down a few feet before soaring away into the night. Lisa Peliquin recalled, I was frightened, but more in just disbelief. It was one of those things of, what are you going to do? You, you can't explain it. After the third woman left to return home, Murrow and Peliquin were walking along a street in the French Quarter, talking about the scary event they had witnessed. As they talked, all of a sudden they saw a tall man approaching them and merely a few feet away. He was dressed entirely in black. Neither woman had seen him walking up the street toward them. They remembered he just appeared out of nowhere and was astonishingly now in front of them. 
we were just really shocked because we didn't see him walk up to us or feel him there. He was just there, Moreau said. The man said to them, Do you believe in vampires, ladies? At that moment, they heard a crack to their left, like a glass breaking. And they turned for just a second or two in that direction. When we turned back around, I mean just seconds, like turn, turn, he was gone, Moreau said. What is it about vampires that so attracts us? Is it the aspect of eternal life, vampiric immortality? At least until a stake is driven into your heart. There is an undeniable sexiness about vampires, certainly helped by the treatment in films, TV, and books, where vampires are almost always portrayed as dazzlingly beautiful and ageless, if a bit too pale and pasty. There may also be the elements of family and belonging. Vampires look after each other, though certainly out of a desire for self-preservation. There are the super-supernatural powers vampires possess, unusual strength, shape-shifting, hypnotic ability, and as maybe Moreau and Peliquin discovered, the power of flight. Being an all-powerful being has its perks. We know about the fictional vampires, Bram Stoker's Count Dracula, Anne Rice's Lestat, and Stephen King's Kurt Barlow. And we certainly all know about the hundreds of movies and TV series featuring all kinds of vampires. But we're after something different in this episode. Nothing less than the possibility of and stories about real vampires. There's a vast difference between vampires in the original legends and lore and the literary constructs that came later. In original legends from around the world, vampires are purely evil and monsters of the foulest kind. They are portrayed as predators with only one thing driving them, to feed. The suave counts, vampire queens, and secret cobbles controlling global conglomerates are all Western entertainment concepts. They share nothing with the original vampire mythos. Tales of supernatural beings consuming the blood or flesh of the living have been found in nearly every culture around the world for many centuries. The term vampire did not exist in ancient times, but blood drinking and similar activities were attributed to demons or spirits. Even the devil was considered synonymous with the vampire. Almost every culture associates blood drinking with some kind of revenant, that is, someone who has returned from the dead, or a demon, or in some cases even a deity. The Persians were one of the first civilizations to have tales of blood drinking demons. Creatures attempting to drink blood from men were depicted on excavated pottery shards. Ancient Babylonia and Assyria had tales of the mythical Lilithu, synonymous with and giving rise to Lilith and her daughters, the Lilu, from Hebrew demonology. And many world cultures have similar vampire tales, Greek, Roman, Norse, West African, Japanese, Malaysian, as well as others. But things really started picking up in 18th century Europe, especially Eastern Europe. There was a frenzy of vampire sightings with frequent stakings and grave diggings to identify and kill the potential revenants. Even government officials engaged in the hunting and staking of vampires. Despite being called the Age of Enlightenment, during which most folkloric legends were quelled, the belief in vampires increased dramatically, resulting in a mass hysteria throughout much of Europe. The panic began with an outbreak of alleged vampire attacks in East Prussia in 1721, which spread to other regions, 
The hysteria, commonly referred to as the 18th century vampire controversy, raged for a generation. The problem was exasperated by rural epidemics of so-called vampire attacks, undoubtedly caused by the higher amount of superstition that was present in village communities, with locals digging up bodies and, in some cases, staking them. The term vampire was popularized in Western Europe after reports of this 18th century mass hysteria of the pre-existing folk belief in the Balkans and Eastern Europe. In the New World, there was one place in particular that resonated with vampire lore. Today, the city of New Orleans in Louisiana is home to more vampire rumors and folklore than anywhere else in the United States, maybe the world. And the city isn't bashful about capitalizing on its vampire reputation, with plenty of vampire shops and bars in the fabled French Quarter. Of all the vampire legends of New Orleans suggesting vampires really exist, two stand out over the rest. The Coffin Girls of Ursuline Convent and the infamous Count of St. Germain. In New Orleans, it's said the stories have some truth, even today. If we're talking here in New Orleans, of course, I always credit the Ursuline nuns and the casket girls that were brought over from France in the 1720s, said Lord Chaz, owner of Dark Theatre Productions, a ghost and vampire tour company in the French Quarter. The Ursuline Convent is a three-story colonial building, a masterpiece sitting behind a high wall accompanied by old Gothic iron gates and a lush courtyard. During the day, the beauty of the architecture and the landscaping is unmistakable, but the property at night takes on a more sinister air. One of the oldest structures in New Orleans, the Ursuline Convent, was built in 1734 and rebuilt in 1751. The Louisiana governor had sent a letter to King Louis XIV asking that young, pious, virtuous, and marriageable women be sent to the colony. In 1728, a group of young women and girls arrived in New Orleans aboard the La Nouvelle Orleans. With them, they carried hope chests, but to the townspeople, they looked like coffins. When the male colonists saw the women, they remarked about how pale they were. The women were so pale that apparently their skin burned and blistered in the sun. According to many sources, these women were so strange-looking that many of them were rejected by the men. Shortly after the casket girls arrived in New Orleans, the death rate doubled. To be more precise, the infant mortality rate rose significantly. That's when we see legends of vampire-like murders and people drained of blood, Chaz said. Rumors about vampires surrounded the convent immediately. Many believe the casket girls smuggled vampires over from Europe in the caskets. And to this day, the original caskets are supposedly still stored in the attic at the Ursuline convent or so the folklore goes. In one version of the story, after the nuns put the girls' caskets on the third floor, the nuns went upstairs at a later time to find the caskets were empty. The nuns searched for but never found the belongings that were supposed to be in the caskets. They believed the girls may have smuggled in something sinister that had escaped. The third floor windows are said to be nailed shut with nails that were blessed by the Pope. If you look at the Ursuline convent, you'll notice that all of its attic windows are covered with shutters. But if you go around the French Quarter, you'll notice that attic windows don't normally have shutters, Chaz explained. Ghost City quotes a tour guide who ups the fear factor. It is there, the guide says, that the casket girls still remain locked away, without the nails blessed by the Pope. 
the young women who once hailed from France would be out, roaming the streets to feast on the blood of the living. Legend has it the attic shutters are always tightly closed, yet no one can explain why occasionally, late at night, someone will see them suddenly open, but then inexplicably they're closed again at morning light. According to sources, the casket girls eventually moved into the convent. According to a 2021 article, My Granny Was a Vampire Smuggling Casket Girl, a possibly true story, by Michael DeMacher, the third floor windows were sealed off to protect the virtue of the women. DeMacher writes that hand mirrors the girls brought with them disappeared, and crops failed. Whispers began that the vampire pale casket girls had brought an evil with them from the old country. Eventually, the nuns threw the casket girls out and closed up the third floor attic forever, he wrote. The convent is currently a tourist attraction, including a ghost tour and a vampire tour. Today, the first floor is a museum, and the second floor is the home of the Archdiocese archives dating back to 1718. The third floor is reportedly off-limits during tours. But what's on the third floor behind those mysterious shutters that are always tightly secured? Nobody seems to know the answer to that question, but there are speculations. Is it possible something evil lurks in that attic? Is it possible they're keeping something locked in? The legend of Jacques Saint-Germain, known as the Count of Saint-Germain, revolves around a charismatic but mysterious man who disappeared as strangely as he arrived and exhibited some uniquely vampire-like qualities and behavior. Accounts of St. Germain have occurred at many points throughout history and include sightings in New Orleans where he allegedly attacked a woman before disappearing into the shadows. Was Jacques St. Germain really a vampire? And is he still walking among us? Jacques St. Germain seemingly appeared out of nowhere in New Orleans when he moved into his home in 1902. No one knew where he had come from, and his charm apparently distracted people from digging deeper into his history. St. Germain settled into a house on Royal Street and quickly had the residents of New Orleans viewing him as someone they ought to know and respect, becoming a sought-after member of New Orleans' high society. It's possible the elite of New Orleans may very well have invited a vampire into their ranks. Saint Germain claimed to be the descendant of the Comte de Saint Germain, a celebrity in the 18th century who had ties to King Louis XV. While many people were skeptical of his claim, they had to admit the two men looked very similar. What makes the situation even more odd is that the Comte de Saint Germain was born in either the late 1600s or early 1700s, although he never appeared to age past 40. The Comte de Saint-Germain became friends with many famous figures throughout his life, including Casanova, Catherine the Great, and Voltaire, the last of whom called him a man who never dies and who knows everything. According to one story, in 1760, Countess von Gregory struck up a conversation with Comte de Saint-Germain Jacques' alleged ancestor. She thought she had met the Comte de Saint-Germain 50 years earlier and assumed that the man standing in front of her was his son due to their similar appearance. The Countess was surprised to discover it was Saint-Germain himself, looking exactly the same as he did 50 years earlier and joking that he was more than 100 years old. 
According to local records, St. Germain passed away on February the 27th, 1784, meaning he would have likely been in his 80s or 90s. However, sightings of St. Germain continued long after his reported death. He was allegedly seen all over Europe, including at the execution of Marie Antoinette in 1793. In the 1820s, St. Germain supposedly took the identity of a man named Major Fraser, a well-traveled man who lived alone and looked very similar in appearance. Around 80 years later, St. Germain allegedly made it to New Orleans, although it looked as if he hadn't aged a day, even though he would have been 200 years old. When people realized Jacques St. Germain never seemed to age either, they began to secretly wonder if he was actually the Comte de St. Germain. Rumors began circulating that St. Germain was some sort of immortal. He refused to deny or confirm the rumors. A few months after he arrived in New Orleans, St. Germain invited a woman to join him at his home. As she was examining some of his belongings, St. Germain allegedly jumped at her and began biting her neck. The woman was saved when someone showed up and knocked loudly at his door. The noise distracted him long enough for the woman to escape his grasp and jump off his balcony. People on the street assumed she had fallen and her terrified screaming got the attention of the police. The woman told the story of her horrifying encounter with St. Germain, but he was never brought in for questioning. Since he was a rich and respected member of the community, the police did not detain St. Germain after he allegedly attacked the woman. Instead, they politely asked him to join them at the police station in the morning assuming there was a reasonable explanation for the evening's strange events. When St. Germain failed to show up, the police paid a visit to his home and discovered both he and most of his belongings had vanished. But to their horror, that is not all they discovered. They found clothes from all different time periods stained in blood. Blood stains were found on tablecloths all over the house and appeared to have been from different occasions. There was absolutely no food in the house. Authorities didn't find any eating utensils or plates in the home either. However, they did unearth many wine bottles and glasses filled with what seemed to be red wine, but were in fact human blood upon further inspection. St. Germain's acquaintances claimed he told stories of things that happened hundreds of years earlier, complete with details. Perhaps he really was there and he may still be walking the streets of the French Quarter. A believable modern incarnation of St. Germain has been seen lurking around New Orleans, moving with amazing speed and bothering tourists. He reportedly wears a black leather jacket and calls himself Jack. Well, New Orleans may have cornered the market on vampires, but there are other stories of purported actual vampire encounters over the years that provide a tantalizing glimpse into the possibility of real vampires being out there. So, with those two historic New Orleans stories in our rearview mirror, let's look at some other reported encounters with real vampires. Serbian Vampire Encounter Numerous cases exist in the historical record, and not all of them are just folktales and hearsay. Take the story of Arnold Paoli, an 18th century Serbian who was believed to have become a vampire after his death. There is an account of his grave being opened to reveal an undecomposed blood-splattered body 
which did indeed groan on being staked. Adding to the intrigue, a panel of army surgeons, hard-headed, scientific, and thoroughly unsuperstitious, later investigated other corpses in the area linked to Paoli and described them as undecayed and being in a condition of vampirism. A Vampire versus Cowboys Dale Bacon, assistant curator of the Nebraska State Historical Society, says Nebraska cowboys in the late 1890s encountered a real vampire. In 1895, near Pine Ridge, Nebraska, ranch hands, cattle, and wildlife were reportedly attacked by a crazed maniac. Ranch hands witnessed the man chase down cattle, wrestle them to the ground, and then horrifyingly rip away at the throat with hands and teeth. Witnesses saw him lapping up the blood from the wounds the way a dog laps up water. A cowboy named Jack Lewis ran into the man that people were now openly calling a vampire. Alone one night, the vampire attacked Lewis. Lewis was able to draw his gun and fire twice. The vampire ran into the night with Lewis and other ranch hands chasing him on horseback. But to their surprise, the man had vanished and was never seen again. Lewis was treated for tooth and claw marks on his face and neck. The Mineral Point Vampire A tall, thin, white-faced apparition dressed in a cape terrorized the area around Mineral Point, Wisconsin from 1981 to 2008. The first sighting was by police who were called to Graceland Cemetery to investigate a trespassing. They found a dark figure lurking among the tombstones. But as they approached, the figure sprinted over a fence and disappeared. This was the first of many such encounters between the police and the alleged vampire. In 2008, police were called in after numerous reports of a strange man in a tree. When they arrived, the man dropped to the ground and then easily jumped over a 10-foot concrete wall and again disappeared. The last encounter was in July 2008 when a young couple went fishing at night from a dock on Ludden Lake. In the quiet of the evening, they heard something crawling under the planks where they sat. The young man jumped up and stomped on the dock deck, and the couple heard something splash into the water beneath. Cautiously, he shined his light into the water below, and what he saw terrified him. The couple watched as a tall, thin man splashing in the water began pulling himself up onto the dock. His face was pasty white. He had black hair and was wearing a black cape. Hurling the flashlight at the figure, the couple ran for their car, cranked it to life, and hit the gas. The young woman watched as they sped away and saw the Mineral Point vampire in the red taillights chasing them until he finally faded into the distance. Romanian Vampire Real-life vampires continue to be reported in recent years, and sometimes they occur back in the old countries, where European vampire tales originated. In 2003, in Romania, the death of a man named Petre Toma triggered such a widespread belief in his vampirism that his body was dug up and his heart removed from his corpse. As his brother-in-law described it, when we lifted the coffin lid, his arms were not on his chest as we had left them, but at his sides. His head was turned to the side, and his lips were stained with dried blood. New Orleans Vampire Number 2 Let's have one more encounter 
from the French Quarter. Pretty Hext related the following from 2001. So in 2001, when I was 14, I visited NOLA with my family. For our listeners, NOLA is a shortened nickname for New Orleans, Louisiana. Well, I had a strange experience with my dad. When we talk about it now, we're still flabbergasted and can't explain the situation. The guy was dressed in black. He had long brown hair tied back. And my dad cracked a joke as we drove past him that he was a vampire. He was walking so fast, his coat was flaring behind him on a hot summer night. He then literally looked down at me, and I was scared out of my mind, like a primal jerk of fear. He then crossed behind our car, and my dad and I both watched him fly upwards. My dad slammed on his brakes, and I've never seen him that bewildered. We tried circling back to see if we could find him. Nothing. We just saw the dude fly upwards and be gone. There are two final varieties of vampires we should mention. Not the supernatural type, but humans who drink blood and those who siphon energy. A survey conducted by the Atlanta Vampire Alliance estimates there are around 5,000 real vampires in the United States with about 50 living in New Orleans. Real vampires is a collective term by which these people are known. They're not real in the sense that they turn into bats and live forever, but many do sport fangs, and just as many live a primarily nocturnal existence. So these people are fully human, but identify as real vampires who express a shared, and according to them, biological essence. They need blood, human or animal, or psychic energy from donors in order to feel healthy. The first real vampire type are known as sanguine vampires. The sanguine, meaning blood or blood red, vampires may belong to vampire lifestyle groups, but take the lifestyle fantasy one step further by actually drinking human blood. They typically will not drink a glass of the stuff, as one would a glass of wine, for example, but usually will add a few drops to some other liquid for drinking. On occasion, a sanguine vampire will feed directly from a volunteer or donor by making a small cut and sucking up a small trickle of blood. Some of these sanguine vampires claim an actual need to ingest human blood. The human body does not digest blood very well, and there seems to be no physiological condition that would account for such a need. If the craving is present, then, it's almost certainly psychological in nature, or simply a choice. The second real vampire type are known as psychic or energy vampires. Psychic vampires, some of whom might also adopt a vampire lifestyle, claim they have a need to feed off the energy of other people. According to the Psychic Vampire Resource and Support pages, they're people who, by reason of a condition of their spirit, need to obtain vital energy from outside sources. They are unable to generate their own energy and oftentimes don't have the best capacity to store the energy they do have. We've all been around people who seem to drain the energy from a room when they enter, and they seem to enjoy it. It would be argued that the effect is strictly psychological, but then that's why they call it psychic vampirism. There's no telling how many of us there are, said Houston vampire Tarek Reaver in a 2014 interview. It's definitely over a thousand. Easy, he said. Reaver self-identifies as a psychic vampire. And how did he come to know he was an energy-feeding vampire? 
In most cases, people have an inert, dominant part of them that can be vampiric. I'm starting to feel sick when I'm not around people. That, that's a big thing, said Reaver. You know, if you're feeling healthier around people, you might be subconsciously pulling in their energy. Someone has a sense of perception, like their mental acuity is very sharp, their sense of smell, their hearing. I, I won't say superhuman, but acute. I'm just like right here, drinking in the energy of this room. I think it's a natural thing for me, so I don't fight it at all, said Reaver. So, are you convinced? It might be easy to believe in human sanguine vampires, since they are self-identifying as such, and many speak quite readily about their blood passion. And energy vampires? Maybe not too tough either to buy into. After all, most of us have encountered those who seem to wear us down emotionally and psychically. Is it really too much of a stretch to believe there are those who could drain our physical energy as well? But true supernatural vampires? That might be too big a leap for most of us to make. Yet, for those who believe they have made contact with such creatures, the terror is very real indeed. And what about you? Would you know a vampire if it appeared in front of you? Would you feel an uncontrollable shiver down your spine? Feel the fear of prey standing in front of predator? Kalila Smith of Haunted History Tours believes in vampires, though maybe not in the way you think. I believe that there are people among us today that believe they're vampires. Now, do I believe that there's the traditional corpse that comes from the grave and lives immortally? Well, that's fiction, Smith said. But Lord Chaz, owner of Dark Theatre Productions, a ghost and vampire tour company in the French Quarter, has a different take. I think there are things out there that we don't understand. It's highly likely, it seems to me, that if there is a creature, a predator in our world that preys on humans, it would be in its own best interest to do everything it can to make humans believe that it's a product of fiction. Postscript. New Orleans author Marita Woywood Crandall was provided a tour of the attic of the Ursuline convent in the French Quarter of New Orleans, which is rumored even today to house vampires. Here were her impressions. We walked to the first open door. I didn't really know what I expected to find, but what I did discover there was more eerie than anything I could have imagined on my own. A small room with sections of the floor missing. Perfect rectangular long sections, in fact, were missing between the beams. And these sections were large enough wherein to place coffins. It was almost as if they had been temporarily removed for my visit as there was nothing else in the room and no reasoning behind it. I took a picture of a closed shutter outside one of the dormer windows. The shutter was framed by light begging to come in. This guard made of light stood posed outside the convent walls protecting the French Quarter from the monsters rumored to be inside this room. It was very difficult to tear myself away from this particular scene. I stared at the shutter, which so many have looked at from the street below, wondering what was on the other side. Here I stood, on the inside where the vampires had stood themselves for centuries aching to escape. And the scene was eerie and spectacular, and I think it would have been terrifying at night with no light present as a weapon in my favor. In our next episode, listeners, we look into the Rendlesham Forest UFO encounter. 
it's one of the best known cases in ufology. The Rendlesham Forest incident was a series of reported sightings of unexplained lights near Rendlesham Forest in Suffolk, England in late December 1980, which became linked with claims of UFO landings. The events occurred just outside RAF Woodbridge, which was a base used at the time by the United States Air Force. Air Force personnel, including the deputy base commander, claimed to see things they described as a UFO sighting. The occurrence is the most famous of claimed UFO events to have happened in the United Kingdom and is among the best-known reported UFO events worldwide. It has been compared to the Roswell UFO incident in the United States, and it's sometimes referred to as Britain's Roswell. Did base personnel actually encounter a UFO in the forests of Rendlesham? Or was there a more conventional answer to the mysterious events? Join us to find out next time on the Paranormal Factor Podcast. And now it's time for the episode quiz. Well, it is time for the quiz, and here it is. The Aurora UFO crash occurred in what state? Was it A, Colorado, B, Texas, C, Connecticut, or D, Washington? Once more, the Aurora UFO crash occurred in what state? Was it Colorado, Texas, Connecticut, or Washington? And the answer is... B. Texas. The Aurora, Texas UFO incident reportedly occurred on April the 17th, 1897, when, according to locals, a UFO crashed on a farm near Aurora, Texas. The incident is claimed to have resulted in the death of the pilot, an alien. The pilot was buried at the Aurora Cemetery, and a stone was placed as a marker for the grave, but has since been removed. On that April 19th day, An article in the Dallas Morning News described the UFO crash. A cigar-shaped airship was seen falling from the sky. The UFO was said to have hit a windmill on the property of a Judge J.S. Proctor at about 6 a.m. local time, resulting in its crash. Townspeople heard a big crash, and several went to investigate, and they found a wreckage of material they'd never seen before. They also found a being, which they called not of this world. The pilot, who was reported to be from Mars, people thought at the time, did not survive the crash and was buried with Christian rites by traveling pastor William Russell Tabor at the nearby Aurora Cemetery. The Dallas Morning News, taking it at face value that it was indeed an extraterrestrial event, linked the alien ship to a series of UFO sightings around the country. Papers found on his person, evidently a record of his travels, are written in some unknown hieroglyphics and cannot be deciphered, the newspaper reported. It added, The ship was too badly damaged to form any conclusion as to its construction or motive power. It was built of an unknown metal, resembling somewhat a mixture of aluminum and silver. Reportedly, wreckage from the crash site was dumped into a nearby well located under the damaged windmill, while some ended up with the alien in the grave. The townspeople took to calling the alien Ned, a name that has stuck over the years. Researchers have looked into the story for years, testing water in the well where the wreckage was said to be stored, digging metal out of trees at the crash site as proof something exploded, and using radar to see if there really is an alien in the grave. In the 1970s, people even tried to exhume the remains. 
You cannot exhume a grave unless you notify the next of kin, said Tony Wheeler, Aurora's city administrator, in 2016. And that's how the Cemetery Association got the court injunction in 1972 to keep them from exhuming the remains. The incident has recently been investigated again on TV, and the cemetery contains a Texas Historical Commission marker mentioning the incident. But Ned and his craft, well, they remain a mystery. It's an intriguing case, and so we'll include this one in an episode later this year when we look into three of the top Texas UFO cases on the Paranormal Factor podcast. Well, that'll do it for this episode. A theme song is Knockers by Cinco, courtesy of Upbeat Music. Hey, before you leave, if you could, please do me just two favors. First of all, if you did enjoy the show, please leave a like on your favorite listening application. And secondly, if you liked what you heard, please spread the word. Love to have some new listeners out there to join you. I'm your host, Richard Wright. Keep your eyes open for the unusual folks, and thanks for stopping by.